Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Ken Barton. It is entitled, Spiritual Heritage. Ken. Bob. Humbug. And I'm not talking about a Christmas carol. Ba is an exclamation of contempt. And humbug, according to uh, Merriam-Webster, is A, something designed to deceive and mislead, or B, a willfully false, deceptive, or insincere person. I'll explain more about where I'm getting this, where I intend to use it. I know that people think that we're facing, what we're facing in the United States today is something that's never really seen before, but that's just not so. You see, there are many things that we, the people of the United States of America, have faced before, and some of things, some things we still have yet to face. You know, we've read the, the book, and we know how it ends, but it's going to be hard before we get there. We're not there. But things like, America's not a Christian nation. Our forefathers weren't Christian. Our government is not supposed to be Christian. And more garbage under different headings. So how did I get on this track? <clears throat> I know some folks think I'm kind of like the squirrel, uh, the dog. At squirrel! <laughs> I try not to be. But the other day, Glenda and I were at a Bible bookstore Christian bookstore, and I saw a couple of books that drew my attention, and today I'm going to speak about one of them with you. It's called Spiritual Heritage, A Tour of the United States Capitol. It's a self-guided tour to read the book, and it's copyrighted in 2000 by David Barton. It's the second edition, third printing, copyright 2012. David Barton is the founder of Wall Builders Incorporated, or wall builders, I guess. It's an organization dedicated to presenting America's forgotten history, or ignored history by some folks. Dedicated to presenting uh, the heroes of our country, our forefathers, with an emphasis on our moral, religious, and constitutional heritage. <clears throat> David is the author of numerous best-selling works and a national award-winning historian brings a fresh and an accurate perspective to our history. And no, alas, as far as I can tell, I'm not related to it. But I can still call him cousin, right? Mr. Barton's book takes readers through the Capitol buildings, pointing out paintings and statues of former, uh, of many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. <clears throat> Let me catch up with myself. <clears throat> and other signers of other documents that are on display. He shares the backgrounds and histories of these men and explains <clears throat> and shows that they were strong Christians, believing in Jesus and in God the Father as the only God to be worshipped and sought for his blessings and favor. 
Mr. Barton purposely debunks the notion <clears throat> that our founding fathers were not Christians, but were at most deists. That statement was made by a historian named Gordon, Gordon Wood in 1992 in an interview with Frederick Smollard in American Heritage Magazine, December 1992, Volume 3, Issue 8. I'm going to try to really be careful about notating because I called wall builders and told them I was going to be presenting this book and pictures from it. And she said, as long as I don't try to change what he said, I should be okay. And as long as I don't try to say what I, that I did it, and as long as we don't charge admission. I told her she was pretty safe. <clears throat> anyway, in this interview, Mr. Wood who also wrote an, entitled, uh, an article entitled America's Unchristian Beginnings, forcefully claims, according to Mr. Barton, that the early presidents and patriots were generally deists, or deists, or however you're supposed to say that, or Unitarians, believing in some form of impersonal providence. but rejecting the divinity of Jesus and the relevance of the Bible. A deist basically, as near as I can ascertain, thinks that, ah, God made the earth and all the universe, blah, 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 and then went on to do whatever other things gods do and just left us alone. Didn't worry about us anymore. Another author, David Morris, states in an August 5, 1995, L.A. Times article, America's Unchristian Beginnings, that most of our patriots that were at best deists not believing in the God of the Old and New Testament. And there's also a book titled The Godless Constitution, published in 1996. <clears throat> and that, that title pretty much seems to me to say it all. Remember, these were written by supposedly educated and intelligent people who were able to investigate history and knowingly write on these matters. My opinion doesn't quite go that high of them. But because the average citizen doesn't know who the founding fathers were, the absurd accusations, as Mr. Barton refers to them, often go unrefuted. And because they go unrefuted, these asinine statements, asinine means silly, stupid, or foolish, so, you know, I don't want folks to think I'm being vulgar up here. But because they go unrefuted, the more they're repeated, people accept, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. That goes along with Hitler's motto. Repeat the lie. Repeat the lie. Repeat the lie. If you tell it long enough, people will begin to believe it. Recognizing this, David Barton has embarked on a task of trying to correct some of the ignorance. Uses a picture of the signing of the Constitution to help make this argument. Or actually, it's the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And could you bring that one up, 
Bryant, uh, number one. Now, we could make that bigger, but it wouldn't help me any. How many folks can, can identify it? There's 39 people here. Yeah, I couldn't either. <clears throat> Who cares, someone may ask. We should. Because these men and their families stepped out on faith in God to break away from what they saw as an unjust government and to form a new nation. That should make us ashamed because they aren't just a bunch of pictures that are, you know, we find in a box after somebody passed away and we're going through them. And they could be members of our family, but we don't have any idea who those people are. You know, and as a general rule, you know, we're, we're not able to find out. But these people, these, these people are, are people of record. These people are heroes. These people, it's written down in places who they are and what they've done. <clears throat> the main reason I want you to realize some things about these people, and I'm not going to cover in, anywhere near all these folks. Uh, I'm just going to whet your appetite. If you don't know the truth, you can't refute the lies. You have to have some idea of the truth. I'm pretty certain that's why there are those who abs are absolutely determined to erase all the history of the United States in any way that they can. The further away they can get us from the facts, the easier it will be for them to destroy our nation and us. Mr. Barton starts the tour at the Rotunda which basically means the round room. It's located in the center of the capital. It'll be the next one, I think. Brian, if you could show the, the rotunda. I didn't have that as the next one, did I? My apologies. We'll get to it. Anyway. You guys know what the rotunda looks like. That big. Uh, it was open to the public in 1924, and I kind of had a little dome on it. Uh, they started the uh, dome edition in 1857. It was completed in 1866, and that little dude, according to in the in the book is so tall if you place the Statue of Liberty inside of it, it's still almost 30 feet from the tip of the torch to the top of the dome <clears throat> on the inside. According to a site that, uh, that I found, is 2009, how tall is the Statue of Liberty? She's 151 feet tall from the bottom of, of the base to the tip of the torch. She stands on a pedestal that's 65 foot tall and, or, and the uh, foundation, and the pedestal is 89 feet. So together, all that, 305, it can't fit. <laughs> but just 
the statue herself can fit in there. On the east and west walls of the rotunda are eight oil paintings. Each one is 14 feet by 20 feet, and each depicts an important historical event. On the east side has pictures depicting the age of exploration and colonization. And they were put in there between 1840 and 1855. The first picture depicts Columbus landing on, in the Western world in 1492 and the prayer service that was held. And I, I kind of missed the prayer service. There's a couple of people kneeling. I guess that's a close enough reference, but I'll take it. The second is of DeSoto discovering the Mississippi River in 14 and uh, 1541. And then the third is the baptism of Pocahontas at Jamestown. <clears throat> I have uh, some interesting uh, deals about, about Pocahontas. She was led to Christ by John Walt. R-O-L-F-E, and he would later become her husband. The baptism took place in 1613 by the Reverend Alexander Whitaker. Dr. Bart, uh, Mr. Barton states, interestingly on her baptism, Pocahontas changed her name to Rebecca because she wanted a biblical name to accompany her throughout her new life as a Christian. The fourth is the embarkation of the pilgrims in 1620. They were praying before they left Holland to come to America. This painting also depicts the direct influence of the Geneva Bible. You'll notice that right there in the center. You put the important stuff right in the center, don't you? <clears throat> I had never heard of the Geneva Bible. You guys heard of the Geneva Bible? I kind of expected you would, Steve. <clears throat> There's uh, one major difference between the Geneva Bible and the King James 1611 version. Anybody hazard a guess as to what the difference is? Here's a hint. It was part of the reason the Great Britain made it illegal for the colonies to print their own English version of the Bible. So this is a uh, picture is of the uh, Geneva Bible. I finally get to use this pointer. All these are commentaries, okay, in, in the border. <clears throat> There were 140 editions of the Geneva Bible printed from 1560 to 1644, and it was a favorite of those who were called pilgrims, separatists, dissenters, and Puritans. Riffraff. We have a lot in common. The one they brought with them was that you saw in that in that lap. That was the pocket Bible. It was, it was only six inches by eight inches in size, size. Previous editions were quite a bit larger, some being over two feet in height. 
And a lot of them were called pulpit Bibles because they were chained to the pulpit of the church. But the Geneva Bible made it possible for an individual to have his very own that he could read and interpret by his own self. Now, the uh, King James Version, the next one, you'll notice there's no commentary. The commentaries were largely the work of reformers who had been driven from Great Britain during the reigns of Bloody Mary and James I, two monarchs who were advocates of the divine right of kings and of the authority of the state over the church. The Geneva's Bible commentary, Geneva Bible's commentaries, reflected Reformation thought and took an anti-autocratic tone, both toward church and state leaders. Sounds kind of familiar, right? We have folks that kind of anti-establishment. The writers of these commentaries were strong Christians who were strongly in favor of less government involvement. To me, that's the odd kind of the opposite of what's being pushed today. The Pilgrims' open criticism of those leaders made them the target of harsh religious and government persecution. They were looking for relief from that persecution when they came to America in November of 1620. <clears throat> Did you realize that's just coming up on 400 years ago, a little over a year and a half? Before they even came ashore, they established the first government document written on this continent called the Mayflower Compact. That compact, which didn't have any makeup in it, that's the only thing I knew about a compact for a long time. <clears throat> It coupled two important biblical principles that were emphasized in the Geneva Commentary. The first was evangelization. By this compact, the pilgrims declared that they had come to this continent with the express purpose of evangelization, evangelizing the nation to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Doesn't sound like someone who thought that God was just a God up there somewhere. Jesus Christ is personal, isn't he? He's our Savior. Not bad for a group that didn't even believe in him. The second principle was that was what we know these days as social compact. That individuals knit themselves together into a community, which would then govern itself under fixed standards. The pilgrims' fixed standards were established in God's word. David Barton points out, it was 150 years later before these seeds were brought to maturity in our founding fathers announcing these principles in the Declaration of Independence, including the principle that all of, God, all of America would now govern itself under God's laws. Their reliance on God's word and precepts during the American Revolu Revolution was so strong <clears throat> that even the currency and the flags reflected it. And North Carolina's currency contained the words, the law is our king, emblazoned on an open Bible. Now, believe it or not, that Geneva Bible with its commentaries was seen as a problem of the rulers of that day. So those who supported the autocratic viewpoint published some Bibles of their own, the Bishop's Bible and the Rames Bible. I have no idea. I haven't read them. Uh, 
but they were specifically, they both specifically attacked the Geneva Bible's commentary. So we had differing opinions, and instead of being in the newspapers and on the TV news, they were in the Bible, the commentary. So that's kind of interesting. At least they were reading the scriptures along with it, I'm pretty sure. But that was basically the conflict that led to the establishment of official versions of the Bible. Did you ever know, wonder, because I've seen it where it says the official King James Version. Now I know why. That also led, again, to Great Britain making it illegal for British colonies to print an English Bible in the English colony. The west side of the rotunda, the focus shifts to about 150 years later. The paintings on the west side, all four in place in 1824 when it was opened, each represent an important event in America's quest for independence. Include, again, the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. The next one is the Battle of Saratoga in 1777. That was America's first major victory of the American Revolution. <clears throat> the surrender. Uh, this fella here on is General Burgoyne. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I don't guess he's around to gripe. Uh, handing his sword, I believe, to General Washington. But that was in 1777. The next one is the victory at Yorktown, and this is the last battle of the American Revolution. Then the next picture is George Washington resigning as the Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army in 1783. As soon as he had learned, according to my uh, what I, what I read in the book, as soon as he learned about the fact that uh, we had won the war, that England had left, or were leaving, or what, you know, that we had won, he went in and resigned. Wasn't power hungry, didn't he didn't see any reason to stay on as, as the commander-in-chief because we weren't at war anymore. Of course, he got the title back when he was president. That's a whole different ballgame. <clears throat> there are, in addition to these eight pictures, six statues of American heroes and statement, statesmen that line the walls of the rotunda. In the Capitol, each state can send two statues from that state about people from there, you know, that, that they're important. Uh, when he wrote the book, there were also, he states, there were also five to ten other statues depending in the capital. And we're talking the whole capital. So it'd be these six plus 94 others spread about plus five to 10, depending on 
on the various displays at any given time. But I looked it up at visitthecapital.gov and found that they say that it is now 100 statues. Period. No extras. All of these paintings on the west side were painted by the same man, Jonathan Trumbull, one of the founding fathers and also an officer during the American Revolution. Thanks to his exceptional skill as a painter and the fact that he was there at a lot of these happenings, the faces on the paintings are probably as close as you're going to get to having a photograph of the folks there. It's very, very detailed. <clears throat> David Barton speaks about how poor our education has become about the founders. He notes that a textbook was printed in 1848 that provides a back, uh, provided a brief biography of each of the 56 signers of the Declaration. And the knowledge that textbook provided enabled people to immediately dismiss charges that our founders were not religious. Thankfully, he states that book, <coughs> Signers of the Declaration of Independence, copyright 1848, has been reprinted. It is now called Lives of the Signers of the, Const of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm going to get me a copy. I don't know. I got, I bought both the, the actual book and I bought the online version, which was where I got these pictures from. Uh, and it was like $4 something for the online version. I don't remember how much. It wasn't a lot. The book's only like this thick. <coughs> and they're at Mardell's if you're interested. Uh, but this Lives of the Signers, I, you can get on uh, Amazon for a little over four bucks. Or you can try for a copy of the original. It's $127, what they said. And I'm pretty sure it's not in as good a shape. You would be, you know, scared to touch it because if you tried turning the pages and stuff, they're liable to just crumble. I'm going to stop here possibly bring the next leg of the tour sometime later. But just remember the, the proper response. When someone tells you that we're not a Christian nation, the founders of this nation, they weren't even Christian. They maybe believed in a God. Maybe. And the correct response is, Bah! Humbug!